Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. Thanks for coming. Let's pray and we're going to hop into the book of Ephesians together. (coughs) Father, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for what it reveals about you. Um, I pray, along with what Mike prayed earlier, that you would open our eyes. You'd open our ears um, to see and hear and to understand what you're saying to us today. And that you would um, grace us and uh, allow us to be obedient to what you've shown us. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) I've got uh, my internal clock is thrown off. And then the clock that used to be on the back wall fell And I have six pages of notes, so you're in for it. (laughs) Uh, We've been going through the book of Ephesians together as a church, and we've talked about our position in Christ, uh, justification in Christ, and then we've talked about connection with others, and now we're talking about um, our call to represent Christ, to be a representation And uh, last week we talked about walking worthy of the calling that we've been giving. We've been given walking worthy of the calling. And uh, in a really generic, general way, I talked about your calling uh, to be to mature and to grow. And uh, Romans 8 says it best when it says, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. You have a call to be formed by the Spirit of God into the likeness of the Son of God. And um, I I know that this, I too was a little bit frustrated with this definition of your calling. I know that when people talk about their calling in life, they want specifics. And, uh, but what I do love about this calling, your calling in life, um, to be formed by the Spirit of God into the likeness of the Son of God is that everything can work towards this end. Everything is a perfect opportunity for you to live out your calling. Flat tires, lame friends, bad job, no job, all of it becomes a perfect opportunity to work towards this end. For you to be formed by the Spirit of God into the likeness of the Son of God. We talked about Jesus' walk last week, about how Jesus walked humbly, He was patient, and how we're called to walk in those same ways. Um, And today, my, my goal is to just get a little bit more specific, which I'm sure you were hoping for. Last week was a little bit general, and it was kind of like, wow, so we just plugged this into this simple formula, you know. Your flat tire plus your calling to be formed by the Spirit of God into the likeness of the Son of God equals, you know, wow. (laughs) And I want to get a little bit more specific because I want to talk about your call to ministry. The Bible's pretty clear and teaches that you have a call to ministry. Every member ministry is what we call it. We're pretty far uh, from this. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's not... I want to go ahead and say that there's not too many people welcoming the purposes of God and the mission of God in their lives. And this can be seen by those, um, this can be seen by the numbers. 
There's 2.2 billion Christians worldwide. 2.2 billion Christians worldwide. And 12 million of those are engaged in ministry. And that includes both clergy and laymen. These aren't paid professionals. We're talking about people engaged in ministry. There's about 12 million of those 2.2 billion that are engaged in ministry. Some sort of ministry. If you do the numbers on something like that, uh, you'll find out that that is a 0.55% of Christians are engaged in some sort of ministry. Now, this is probably a little bit narrow. This is probably a pretty narrow definition. Could be a little bit broader. But about half of 1% of Christians are engaged in some sort of ministry. And that means that obviously about 99% of Christians aren't engaged in, in ministry. And so we obviously don't understand that we've got a calling and we've got a ministry that God's given us. And, and I want to say something because you're probably um, wearing this as I'm speaking right now. You're probably like, yeah, that's me. Yeah, I need to do more, read more. I should be here more, all of those things. Um, but I think that the failure, uh, the real failure lies with Christian leadership. Now, that doesn't get you off the hook. You're not a victim. But there's a problem with the way we've set up church and, and the way we've structured the leadership that I feel like um, keeps us from embracing the reality laid out in First Peter of every member ministry. And I think the failure has been a structure that's weighted in the favor of teaching and pastoral care. And I think that this structure that has favored the pastor and the teacher has really marginalized those that have apostolic, evangelistic, and prophetic giftings. And so the work of ministry shifts from being a missional community to us maintaining. The ministry focus shifts to maintenance and for caring for and teaching the congregation. These things are very valid. The role of teacher, pastor in the church, absolutely valid. But we have a structure that favors those two gifts. And so the church has moved from being uh, a missional community to being one pretty inward in its focus. And today we're going to look at the types of leaders that Jesus gives the church. We're going to look at the types of leaders that Jesus gives the church. And then we're going to talk about why he's given these leaders to the church. Open up your Bibles with me to Ephesians 4 verse 11. We'll start actually in verse 7. I'm sorry. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Skip down to verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And I want to stop uh, right there. Actually, I want to stop and just say that he himself gave some to be. He himself gave some to be. Jesus gave some to be these types of leaders. And the worthy walk that we talked about last week is meant to be a reflection of Jesus. We're called to walk worthy of the calling so that we can be a reflection of Jesus. And I want to say that the types of leaders that Jesus has given to the church are meant to be a reflection of him. The types of leaders that Jesus has given to the church, the different types of leaders he's given, are meant to be a reflection of him. This is really important because I think sometimes when I say the word apostle, you don't necessarily think of Jesus. You think of some guy in a suit on TBN. 
And when I say the word prophet, you don't think of Jesus. You know, I, I don't know what you think of when I say the word prophet. <laughs> but chances are it's probably not Jesus. When I say the word evangelist, you probably think of a bigger sweaty man in the south, you know, preaching fire and brimstone, people repenting. This is what you think of when I say evangelist. What I want to say is you need to get this this morning. When you think of apostle, you need to think of Jesus. When you think of prophet, you need to think of Jesus. When you think of evangelist, you need to think of Jesus. When you think of pastor, you need to think of the chief shepherd, Jesus. When you think of teacher, someone who reveals the wisdom of God, you need to think of Jesus. We as a church are the body of Christ, and we continue the, G- the ministry that Jesus began. And so it makes sense, because Jesus was an apostle, that he would give some to be apostles. And it makes sense that he was a prophet, that he would give some in his church to, to function in that same way. This is meant, this leadership structure that Paul is unpacking here in Ephesians 4, is meant to be a reflection of Jesus. And let that be um, the dominant picture in your mind when you think about these roles and these functions. I had to ask myself the question, and maybe um, this, this might come as a, a shock for some, but I had to stop and ask myself the question as I read this passage that said he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And I think we would all stop right now and recognize, yeah, that is true. He did give, at one time he gave some to be these things. But the question I found myself asking as I was reading this text is, does he still give some? Does he still give this type of leader to the church or is this something that he just once gave to the church? Or does he still give this type of person to the church? And if you're raised in a more conservative church, or I don't want to necessarily use the word conservative, um, but there are some churches that believe that these, in particular, probably three out of the five have ceased. Um, Two, we still need the pastor and teacher. But we don't need the apostle, we don't need the prophet, and we don't need the evangelist. What we need is the pastor-teacher. And some of us were raised in probably what would be more charismatic churches that believe that these roles are still available to us today. And so I dove headlong into the debate that surrounds whether or not these offices still exist. And the truth is, is that in the end of it, there's a really uh, historic Um, debate about the continuation of offices and I feel like truthfully we can avoid this debate by just talking about the function and leaving behind the office everyone is so um, bent towards uh, position and what I want to talk to you today about is function we need not apostles We need apostolic function in the church. We don't need prophets. The reason we need prophets is because we need the prophetic. We don't put people in office just to put people in a position. We put people in positions so that they can function and we can enjoy their function. And so I do believe that there's a way that we can avoid this historical debate by just leaving behind this idea of office and talking about function together. There are some of you here this morning that you, you have apostolic gifting. And we'll, talk about, we'll talk more about what apostolic gifting is. But you, you are an entrepreneur. You love groundbreaking. You love starting new works. You love pioneering things. And there is apostolic gifting in you. And I want to say that what I believe the difference is between apostolic gifting and being an apostle might just be 25 years of you being faithful to the gifting that God's put in you. There are some of you that have prophetic gifting. You, you hear God say things, and you want to communicate what you believe God's saying. Uh, Bruce did that earlier in our time of worship. It was like, I feel like God's speaking something to this church, and I want to communicate 
what God's speaking in a timely way. God's gifted you prophetically. The difference between being prophetic and being a prophet is just a long, long time of you faithfully walking in community with other people and living out that gifting. I want to dip a little bit into... um, help you understand the argument that surrounds some being given to be apostles, uh, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So I've often read this passage and thought to myself, well, how come? How come we're so particular? How come we've kept two out of the five? Some, how come we believe that three out of the five are valid today? Why is it that we've chosen some of these um, to continue in the leadership of the church. You know, do you, you guys understand what I'm saying? Why is it that when I hand you my business card and it says, Travis Aikland, pastor, do you not blink? But if I handed you my business card and it said, Travis Aikland, prophet, you'd be like, this guy's out to lunch and I'm not going to his church. You know? Worse yet would be for me to hand you my, uh, my business card and it says apostle. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. But I had to ask myself, why, why are we so particular? One author wrote that I read, There are certain gifts which were temporary, and they were extraordinary in the church. Certain functions were only meant to be in use for a certain period of time, and which since then have disappeared. I wanted to honestly ask myself the question, are there modern-day apostles? Are there modern-day apostles? And is my suspicion of people who would say that born out of Scripture or born out of experiences in a historical precedent of seeing so many false apostles? So many false prophets. <clears throat> Can I take you guys into the debate a little bit? Is this interesting to anyone else or... Really? Okay. Sometimes, you know, you dig into this stuff and there's like three people who are like, yeah, good, that's great. And then everyone else is looking at you, I I don't care. I don't care about this. I don't care about what... You know, I do that with my wife often. You know, you're just geeking out on something. Like, this is so interesting, you know. And I sit her down and I read her like three full pages, like... Can you believe that, you know? Isn't this amazing, you know? And she's like, yeah, what are we going to eat for dinner, you know? No, you you didn't hear what I just said. You did not hear what I just read to you. This is profound, you know? Bottom line, as we get to the end here, I uh, believe that there are those in this church that have apostolic gifting, and and I want to see them uh, pioneering new missional works. I believe that there are some here um, that are prophetic, and you need to be prophesying. And there are some here that are pastors, and you need to be pastoring. The role of the leaders that God's given the church is to equip you to do the ministry. Crazy. Crazy. The word apostle, it means one who is sent, an ambassador, a delegate, one who is commissioned and authorized to represent another and carry out his will and purposes. The original use of the word referred to an admiral admiral leading a fleet of ships to establish a new colony. To be sent as an apostle in the church means to represent Christ as an ambassador or a delegate for a specific work. The scriptures tell us that Saul, Paul, and Barnabas were sent out from the church in Antioch as apostles. Once they left the church in Antioch, though the Antioch church sent them, they were not representing the church, but they were representing the Lord Jesus himself. They moved with a special grace. They moved with a commission and an authority. An apostle, hear me out here. An apostle is not an apostle because he has great gifts, abilities, or anointing. 
An apostle is an apostle because he has a divine commission. He's been called. And the church in Antioch says, Acts 13, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, maybe, you might want to read that yourself, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work, for the work which I have called them. So here we have prophets and teachers fasting and praying. And the Holy Spirit says to them, I want you to set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've commissioned them. And then what are Paul and Barnabas called in the very next chapter of Acts? Apostles. And it's the first time that the word is used to reference anybody outside of the twelve. So what is the difference between being a teacher and a prophet in the church? What is the difference that made these two men apostles? It was the commission that they received from the Holy Spirit. Not the gifting, not the ability, not the anointing, not the hair, not the suit, not people falling over, none of those things. It's a commission from the Holy Spirit to do a specific work is what turned these two men into apostles. And apostle means one who is sent. And so, in a really general, generic sense, every one of us is an apostle because Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, so I now send you. One who is sent. In a specific sense, though, there are three categories of apostles inside of Scripture. Are you guys still with me? Is this, is this okay? There are three categories of apostles revealed in Scripture. And I think understanding the three categories, understanding the three categories can help us deal with the objection that there are no longer apostles in the church. Understanding the three categories helps us deal with the objections. And there are some pretty legitimate objections. There really are. The first category of apostle Jesus Christ stands in alone Hebrews says therefore holy brothers who share the heavenly calling fix your thoughts on Jesus the apostle and the high priest whom we confess he's called the apostle because the father commissioned him for the most important mission Jesus this is really cool to think about Jesus was not self-appointed He's referred to throughout the Gospels as the one sent by the Father. There's a really interesting uh, picture of the Trinity that starts to unfold in our understanding of apostles. Because the Father sends Jesus. And he stands alone in the first category as the one who was sent. And then Jesus then commissions the twelve and then we read on in Acts about the Holy Spirit commissioning others beyond the twelve. So there's a really cool glimpse of the way, uh, just the, of the Trinity. So the second category of apostles is the twelve apostles. These apostles are known as the apostles of the Lamb. Pretty epic, I know. Name your, name your band that. <laughs> Uh, thanks for coming out. We're the apostles of the Lamb. <laughs> These apostles occupy a very special place in the order of God for His church. Listen to me. Hear me clearly. These twelve cannot be joined or replaced. These twelve cannot be joined or replaced. Hear it again, because I'm so scared you're going to leave here and tell your parents, yeah, we learned about apostles and about how I am one today at church. <laughs> These apostles cannot be joined or replaced. Don't tell that to your parents. 
Their extraordinary commission in the foundation of the church is clearly stated in the book of Revelation when it says this, The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. As many of you know, Judas betrayed Jesus and then hung himself. And when he killed himself, they replaced him with Matthias. And when they replaced Judas with Matthias in Acts one we were given the qualifications required to be one of Christ's apostles. And it includes being a witness of Jesus and his resurrection with the other disciples. So basically, when they're trying to figure out, now, who are we going to use to replace Judas? We received the qualifications of what it would take to be one of the apostles. The apostles of the Lamb were Jesus' followers appointed and sent by him. They were also eyewitnesses of his life from the time of John the Baptist to his resurrection. So from his baptism to his resurrection, these guys were eyewitnesses. And this is why a lot of people argue um, against apostles having any function in the church today. How could there be apostles? No one living today can claim uh, that they had seen Jesus from the time of John the Baptist to his resurrection. So therefore it stands that this is, you know, that obviously no one can have this office. There's a real big dilemma with this argument though. Um, because this, this argument would leave out um, all the other apostles except for the twelve. If integrity is kept with this argument that to be an apostle you needed to have seen Jesus Christ be baptized and then be uh, there and, 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 and see the resurrection, then, then Paul himself, the church planter and the writer of the book that we're reading today, would be disqualified. Now, a lot of people would say that Paul was qualified because, as you remember, he had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so, a lot of people would say, no, he has seen Jesus. And so, therefore, he qualifies as an apostle. But that that wasn't the qualification listed in Acts 1. The qualification was not merely to have seen Jesus. The qualification was to have seen Jesus from the time of John the Baptist to his resurrection. Paul didn't even start to follow Jesus until after his resurrection. Some people claim that what Paul saw on the road to Damascus, uh, that that he literally, literally saw the risen Lord. He saw Jesus. But what's interesting is that Acts tells us that the other people that were with Paul that day didn't see anything. And so a lot of people believe that what Paul had on the road to Damascus was an open vision. And what an open vision is, it's, I mean, it's kind of self-explanatory. Because there are ways in which we can close our eyes and envision something. But an open vision is a vision with your eyes open. It's as if you've seen something with your naked eye. So Paul himself wouldn't qualify. Now, the, the argument even goes further, and they thought, well, they shouldn't have chose Matthias, because they should have just waited, because Paul was coming. And so their election of Matthias as the 12th apostle was invalid. It was Paul's spot, and, and Paul was coming. They just didn't wait long enough. You know, It's just absurd, really. I mean, honestly. Because beyond Paul... There's at least seven others that are referred to in the New Testament as apostles. And Paul, along with these other men, fall into the third category of apostle, which is the post-ascension apostles. So you get the three categories. One, Jesus stands in alone. The second, belongs and is closed. And it belongs to the apostles of the Lamb. They can't be joined or replaced. Then the third category are those that received their commission and their calling as apostles post-resurrection, after the day of Pentecost.
people are, are, are typically surprised when you tell them um, that there are many other apostles named in Scripture besides the twelve. Does that come as a shock to anybody this morning? Don't worry, it's not like a... Is that new news to anyone this morning that there are more, more than twelve apostles and named in the New Testament? Okay, I'm not going to make you raise your hand. Sorry about that. <laughs> Anybody ignorant of Scripture? Raise your hand. <laughs> Anybody not read their Bible in two months? Paul and Barnabas are called apostles. Apollos, Andronicus, Junia, Epaphroditus, Titus, Erastus, Timothy, Judas, Silas, Titius, and two other unnamed apostles. And some would say, well, that's all fine and dandy. Not only were there 12, but there were also post-ascension apostles. That was, uh, that was for a limited period of time. Those ministries and those gifts ceased when we received the Bible. And again, without going in depth into this argument, because it's a huge argument, I just want to say that the problem is, is that there's nothing in the Bible to suggest that these ministries or gifts would cease. You could never read just this Bible and come away believing that ministries and gifts have ceased. You would have to read something other than Scripture to get that idea. You'd probably have to move to Dallas. I'm not joking. There's a, there's a huge, like, you know, there's a huge... I, I can't get it. This isn't the point of, of the sermon, and I don't want to get bogged down uh, with details. But my, my biggest beef with dispensationalism and cessationism, the idea that these gifts have ceased, is that no one just reading this book would ever believe that. And the other problem is church history. <laughs> it's a problem for... For people that believe that these gifts and ministries have ceased. Because history affirms their ongoing role. Gifted men and women have functioned in all five leadership roles throughout church history. And they have extended and substantiated the original work. One author wrote, the reality is is that whenever pioneering movements have emerged, William Carey, John Wesley, William Booth, Chuck Smith, apostolic giftedness was evident. Most people's objection to modern day apostles is just simply a status objection. It really is. It's like there's something in it that's just bugged. Like you think you have more authority in the church than you should really have. How dare you put yourself on par with these other men? I think it's a valid objection. I really do. I would probably say all of those things. Wayne Grudem writes, If any in modern times want to take the title of apostle to themselves, they immediately raise the suspicion that they may be motivated by inappropriate pride and desires for self-exaltation along with excessive ambition and a desire for much more authority in the church than any one person should rightfully have. Most people's objection to both the role of apostle and prophet is really simply a status objection. How dare you, you know? (laughs) And again, um, I I feel like uh, this status objection is typically motivated by us having an idea of what an apostle or a prophet is that's not based on Christ himself or the apostles and prophets that we see in Scripture. There's been a lot of false pastors as well, but we haven't done away with them. Been a lot of crappy teachers, and they're still teaching. There's been a lot of false apostles, but that doesn't mean that we just get to get rid of this third category. 
lot of false prophets. I love Paul's theology. In Corinthians, he's writing to a group of people that are out of control with the gifts. I mean, just chaos. If I was honestly pastoring that church, I would have written the Corinthians and I would have said, Stop. All of it. Right now. Stop doing this. This is ridiculous. And Paul writes them and says, Don't stop. Do it with a different motivation. Do it out of love. You know, doesn't this fly in the face of our, our like Christian theology where it's like, don't dance, they do that outside of the church. We'll look too much like the world. Don't dance. Let's stop dancing. We don't listen to that type of music. We don't touch that stuff. It's like automatically when there's been abuse or when there's counterfeits, we just do away with it, period. There's a lot of counterfeit money, and if I find a $20 bill on the sidewalk, I'm going to pick it up. <laughs> Just because there's counterfeits doesn't mean that there aren't, uh, that there, there isn't, um, yeah, value or things are valid, you know. We can't just dispose of things, you know. All right, anyway, I'm not sure if that was beneficial at all. What I want to say to you today is that the office of apostle is closed. Closed. Over. It's a special place that some special men had. But there are those in the church today that are still gifted with the ministry of apostle. And like I said earlier, I just think that we could as a church just avoid... The controversy. I really do. Because I'm not interested in apostles. I'm really not. I'm not interested in what's on your business card. (laughs) I want to see those things functioning in the church. If you have to tell people what your gifting is, it might not be your gifting. (laughs) Do you get what I'm saying? Oh, I'm a leader. Sure, you know. (laughs) Oh, you know, I, I, it should be evident. You shouldn't have to, oh, well, I have a position. No, you have a, a function. And if you function like that for some period of time, and now people begin to seek you out to say, hey, what, what's God speaking right now? Then you may have an office or a position. Hey, I'm real nice. Okay, this should, these things should be evident to me. You shouldn't have to... Shouldn't have to tell me these things. I would. I would be suspicious of anybody who has those things on their business card. I wouldn't take it, their business card. Again, the only reason we put a person in office is so that they can function. So why can't we just talk about the apostolic function and the prophetic function in church, the evangelistic function, the pastoral function, and the teaching function. We need all five of these things to be functioning. Mary, would you hand those out? Listen, listen to me real quickly. Is this, this became really evident to me. Every one of you should be found in one of these five giftings. One of these ministries is yours. Let's just pretend, okay? Maybe this is still coming as a shock to you. You're still upset that I even said that there was a third category of apostles. Let's just pretend like one of these ministries is for you. Now, it's not just one ministry. You can have a primary ministry in your life and you can have a secondary ministry. You can have other ministries in your life that support your primary function. But let's just pretend that one of these is yours because this is really clear in Ephesians 4. Is that God gave apostles because He wants His church to be apostolic. And God gave prophets because He wants His church to be prophetic. He doesn't give us these type of leaders so we can stand alone. And they can be the man. They can be the guy. 
He puts these people in position of leadership inside the church so that he can equip the saints for ministry. You have one of these five ministries. And I don't even care if you're walking with Jesus right now. You probably have one of these five ministries. I know people who, who actually uh, don't know Jesus and are incredibly apostolic. I know people who don't know Jesus and are actually pretty prophetic. They're pretty discerning people. Just on the wrong team. They don't care what team you're playing for right now. You probably have one of these giftings. So let's talk about these functions. Leave behind the office. I'm not interested in you being an apostle. I'm not. But I am interested in an apostolic function here in this church. What is the apostolic? Those that are gifted and are apostolic are the entrepreneurs in this church. They pioneer new missional works and they oversee their development. The definition of what it means to be apostolic is that you're essentially the steward of the DNA of the church. As the sent ones, apostolic ministry and leadership ensures that Christianity is faithfully transmitted from one context to another context and from one era to another era. The core tasks are extending Christianity, guarding and embedding the DNA of the church, both theologically and missionally, establishing the church in new contexts, Founding the other fivefold ministries or fourfold prophetic, pastoral teaching, and evangelistic, the development of leaders and leadership systems, strategic missional perspective, and translocal networking. This is what we see the apostles doing in Scripture. The impact when they're in sync with other ministries is an extension of the faith. Authentic Christianity. A missional mode of church is fostered. Healthy translocal networking. Growth of a church and movement. Pioneering mission. Experimentation with new forms of church. And manifestations of the five-fold ministries. The impact when you've only got somebody who's apostolic and leading the church is this. Their tendency is toward a domineering style of leadership. There's lots of wounded people in the organization due to the task and future orientation of the apostle. And there's lots of challenge and change and not enough healthy transition. This requires the pastoral and teaching function. If you've just got somebody who's gifted and the apostolic, everything's changing. It's all about the next new thing. I've got vision, you know, and you can't, it's like they're never here, they're never now, they're never listening, and they're never caring about what's going on inside of the church. They're moving on to the next big thing, you know. Like entrepreneurs, they're founding things, and they're doing a terrible job maintaining things. The prophetic gifting. These are the questioners. They discern the spiritual realities in a situation and communicate them in a timely way to further the mission of God's people. I want to go ahead and say, I want to add the word appropriate. (laughs) They communicate them in a timely and appropriate way to further the mission of God's people. The definition, essentially the person who has an ear towards God and acts as the mouth of God and therefore speaks for God, often in tension with dominant consciousness. This is really cool because the prophetic person is the truth teller to the believer. Their focus is discerning and communicating God's will, ensuring ensuring the obedience of the covenant community, questioning the status quo. Man, are you serious? Sorry, I just saw that it was 11.37. They're 
the core tasks are questioning the status quo. Their impact when in sync with other ministries is that the church's obedience and faithfulness to God is on the rise. There's God-oriented faith, less fear of man. How many of you already are kind of like thinking of someone as you're thinking about the prophetic ministry? Or you're thinking of someone when we're talking about the apostolic ministry? They call people to social justice. Their impact when monopolizing the church is a one-dimensional lacking feel to the leadership's conception of church. There's a clickiness in the church. They're exclusive and even offensive. Their propensity to be overly activistic and driven. And sometimes the church just takes on an overly spiritual feel. Now you're thinking of even more people, huh? That's judgment. You know, my wife and I were typing this up last night and just talking, and we were kind of like just laughing, you know? And uh, I, I would say, my wife turned to me and she's like, man, I just feel like I've got grace for these people, you know, that I'm thinking about. It's, it, it's almost like we can see the drawbacks that come with the gift. And not like we've just let them off the hook, like, oh, they're prophetic. They're just weird, you know? <laughs> like, you've got, like you've got permission to just be weird, you know? But you start to see that, wow, there's, there's like, um, you know, because this guy, Alan Hirsch, he doesn't know us. And quite honestly, Alan Hirsch, he's a Baptist brother. I'm not sure he's even spent much time. And so as I'm reading his definition of who a prophet is, I'm kind of like, oh, that's so true, you know. And I don't know, just a love and a fondness for people started to grow in our hearts as we were kind of like, yeah, they are cool. And yeah, they are weird. They're so weird, man, you know. <laughs> I don't know. It's like it comes with it. The evangelistic people in the church, they're the recruiters. They communicate the gospel in such a way that people respond in faith and discipleship. Essentially, the recruiter, the carrier, and the communicator of the gospel message. This is really cool because the the definition... Um, of the evangelist is that he's a truth teller to the unbeliever whereas the prophet is the truth teller to the believer and how many of you um, have had this experience before where because I want to present to you um, that the genius of what Paul was presenting here in in Ephesians 4 was that these types of leaders would stay in tension with each other And they wouldn't think to themselves, man, if we just didn't have those guys, then we'd be doing the stuff. (coughs) But there's a synergy that's created by the tension that lies between these five different leaders. The prophetic gives birth to evangelism. When the believer is hearing the truth, it gives birth to those stepping out and speaking truth to the unbeliever. The prophet ensures that the church is living faithfully. The prophet ensures um, that the primary uh, focus of the church is the fear of the Lord and not the fear of man. The prophet makes a way for the evangelist. And I always felt like it was totally opposite. Have you ever had this experience where you finally invited somebody to church? Maybe, if it's okay, can I just talk about it today, Bruce? Is that all right if I just talk about it today? I know I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> okay. so, so there were Sundays where, because my primary gifting is evangelistic. And there were some days where I would invite my friends to church. And they're sitting next to you. And then a guy like Bruce pipes up in the back. And you're like, whoa, no, I wonder what they're thinking, you know? 
Let's just, talk, let's just talk about this. I want to talk about the elephant in the room and not just pretend like people aren't having these thoughts or feelings. And you're thinking, I brought my unsaved friend. He probably thinks this is so crazy. You know, this church is crazy. It is crazy. Why do I go to this crazy church, you know? <laughs> this would happen without fail. I never invited my friends to church. But the one Sunday that I did, you know, somebody piped up from the back with a word. And I'm like thinking to myself, oh, no. Oh, no, you know, and as I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking there is no obstacle that I face as an evangelist more than the obstacle of people saying, let's just let's just say it this way. The, the number one thing that I find my, myself wrestling through with the unsaved is they say, yeah, but I know Christians and they're hypocrites. I know Christians, and they don't live this way. And so your lifestyle, the way you live your life, is typically people's biggest objection to the Christian faith. And the prophet ensures that you walk the walk, and not just talk the talk. The prophet agitates the status quo. The prophet says, are we being faithful to what God has called us to? And let me tell you, as evangelists, you need the prophets. Because that barrier exists in all my conversations with people. Yeah, well, all that stuff about the church is right, maybe true. I'm into Jesus. But all the people in the church are not living the way that they should be living. And the prophet ensures that you are. And now, uh, what a... you know, what a, I don't know, that was a waste of time. Sorry about that. <laughs> the impact when, when an evangelist is monopolizing the church, when you've got an evangelist like myself in a pastoral place of this church, the impact can be a loss of overarching vision and communal health. The impact can be narrow perspectives on faith limited to a simple gospel. We've all seen this before where churches are pretty good at going out and not that good at going deep. Many of you maybe even came to Christ in an organization like a Young Life or a Campus Crusade. Amazing evangelistic groups. But we all know that maybe that they didn't quite take us as deep in our faith as we thought that they should or would. You know? The pastoral gifting. These are the humanizers. They shepherd the people of God by leading, nurturing, protecting, and caring for them. The definition, they essentially, essentially the pastor cares for and develops the people of God by leading, nurturing, protecting, and dis, uh, discipling them. The focus and core task, cultivating a loving and spiritually mature network of relationships and community and, and making disciples. The impact when they're in sync with other ministries is that they nurture into the faith and the community is nurture into the faith and the community, loving relationships, growth and discipleship, sense of connectedness and worship and prayer. The impact when they're monopolizing is that the church is closed and it's a non-missional community. Codependency between church and pastor, a Messiah complex. Uh, The don't rock the boat approach to the organization. And if it's too feminine an expression, males can be alienated from the church. All true. Teaching. These are the systematizers. They communicate the revealed wisdom of God so that the people of God learn how to obey Christ's commands. Essentially, the ministry that clarifies the revealed mind and will of God so that the people of God gain wisdom and understanding. Their core tasks are discernment, guidance, helping the faith community to explore and seek to understand the mind of God. Their impact when in sync with other ministries is that they understand the understanding of God and the faith, uh, that truth guides behavior, self-awareness, devotion to learning, and uh, integration. Their impact when monopolizing is theological dogmatism or an arrogance. Christian Gnosticism, which is saved by a knowledge of the Bible and theology, and that the Bible replaces the Holy Spirit. Their impact when they're monopolizing is an intellectualism or control through ideas.
So you might be asking yourself, am I only one of these five? And I would say no. If we look at Paul, we know he was an apostle. He was a prophet. He was a truth teller to the believer. We know he was a a heck of an evangelist. We know that he pastored churches. And we know that he was a good teacher because we're still teaching his teachings. And so he was all five of these. And so it might be that you're a mix. What is it, though, that you're primarily concerned with? I think that you saw, as we talked about, the impact that these people have when they're monopolizing a church is evidence that we need all five. We need all five of these people kept in a dynamic tension with one another. Churches tend to go one of these five routes. Let's go on real quick (laughs) and just read Ephesians. Because this is what I love. Because I don't want to focus on these offices. And I don't even necessarily want to focus on the function. But look at the fruit of having these types of leaders in place. And let's just say this. Maybe everyone in this church is going to be called pastor. I don't foresee a day where you're going to call me Apostle Travis. I would be uncomfortable with that myself. But know today that there will be pastors in this church that are apostolic. Their primary function in this church will be to pioneer. There will be pastors in this church that are prophetic. There will be pastors in this church that are pastors. There will be pastors in this church that are evangelistic. And these leaders will be given so that we can be a church that is these things. Is that making sense? I'm not making a lot of sense today. Here we go. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. For your ministry. You have a ministry. Dale Hanley Ministries. (laughs) Till we all come to the unity of the faith. There's a whole um, theme of unity within Ephesians, because with the heightened diversity of different types of leaders comes a heightened call to unity. With the diversity comes a heightened call for unity. Really difficult. Till we come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to be a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth in the body for the edifying of itself in love. Notice the outcome of having these types of leaders in the church. You need those around you that are apostolic. You need those around you that are prophetic. You need those around you that are evangelistic. The end of Ephesians uh, talks about maturity. The reason that you need these five leaders in your life and the reason that you need people that see things in these ways is so that you can become mature. Ephesians also talks about a stability. We need the maturity. We also need the stability. And then verse 15 that says, But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ. And there is an integrity that comes with the fivefold ministry. I want to say it again. If you're gifted uh, as a pastor, we need you to start pastoring. If you're gifted prophetically, we need you to start prophesying. If you're gifted apostolically, we need you right now to start thinking about the church that you're going to plant. Paul, uh, later in his life, he would write Timothy 
And he would tell him this, For this reason I remind you, fan into flame the gift of God. Fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And what I thought we could do today is that on the back of the bulletin you received as you walked in, there are some definitions. And I thought it would be really cool to fan into flame the gift of God in yourself and also to fan into flame the gift of God in others. So this is what I want you to do. There might be some that you're thinking of When you think of somebody who's apostolic, and look at the definition. When you think of someone who's apostolic, you think of who? When I think of someone who's prophetic, I think of who? When I think of someone who's evangelistic, I think of this person. When I think of somebody who's pastoral, I think of this person. And what I want you to do is write uh, that person down. And what I'd like you to do is to approach that person. And just fan that gift into flame. I see this in you, man. It may be far off. It may be really immature. But you're fanning it into flame by saying, I see you operating like this. And then I also want you to tell those same people the gift that you identified most with. The ministry gift that you believe that God's given you. If there are many, choose the primary. But I want us to leave here fanning into flame the gift of God that is in uh, ourselves and in each other by communicating to a person, I see this in you. I see God using you in these ways. Is everybody clear? Let's pray. Jesus, we just want to um, look to you even, even now. And we recognize that the church is called to reflect you and to be a representation of you. And you were the apostle. You lived with a sense of mission and purpose. You were sent by the Father. And you were prophetic. You were such a truth teller to the believer. And you bring the truth to us. Thank you for being an evangelist and constantly recruiting and enrolling people into your cause. It's like you don't want to go it alone and you've brought us along. Thank you for being the chief shepherd. Thank you for being pastoral in our lives. Leading us, nurturing us, protecting us, caring for us. And thank you for teaching us. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit that would lead us into truth. And I want to ask um, that you would awaken giftings inside of people in this church right now. That you would call people by name to different ministries. I ask you, Jesus, for those that are apostolic. That they would start to dream. That they'd start to think about the foundation that they would lay. They'd start to think about where they would go with the good news. I pray for those that are prophetic, that they would turn their ear toward you that you'd grace them to communicate with us what you're speaking. I ask that the prophetic gifting would just be activated in this church right now. I thank you for those that are evangelistic, that don't even want to be here right now. (laughs) Because everybody here knows Jesus. I thank you for them, God. I pray that they'd have an impact on our church. Thank you that they're speaking the truth to the unbeliever. I ask that they would teach us how to speak the truth. How to make a defense of our faith. Thank you for the pastors that are nurturing, caring, and leading in this church right now. I ask that you would uh, continue to fan into flame the gift that you've put in them. Give them a deeper compassion for people.
and a deeper desire to lead in your church. And we pray for the teachers, that you would continue to reveal your wisdom and your mind to them, and that they would communicate it to us. I just pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would just activate the gifts of God that lie dormant in people. Thank you for the ministry that you've given each one of us. And thank you, Jesus, that you uh, showed us how to do what you're asking us to do by being all five-fold. You're all five, and we love you for it. Amen. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantvicelia.com. Until next time. Bye.